Greetings, dear listeners. This is another thrilling episode of the Remnant Podcast. I'm Jonah Goldberg, your host. I am, um, to say I am bleary-eyed is a wild understatement. I got off a plane from the Red Eye from Fairbanks, Alaska this morning, but this was the only window of opportunity to do this conversation, and um, I really wanted to do it. I've been a huge fan of our guest for a long time. It's weird. In the world of interwebs and pneumatic tubes that I live in, there are some people that you end up sort of being sort of virtual friends with without ever actually having met. And um, I'm proud to say that one of them is uh, Brad Thor. Welcome to the studio, the it's, palatial studio. Yeah, listen, this is thrilling for me as a uh, big fan and longtime listener of the podcast uh, to see this. Uh, we are in globalist central, right? <laughs> that's right. That's yeah, right. I mean the, the the Soros masks on the staff outside was really really <laughs> impressive. I, of of all the things that I mean, of all the things that have caught on from this podcast is sort of like bingo card entries. <laughs> the two weirdest ones are my pronunciation of globalists and the other one is of course bigfoot erotica right bigfoot erotica <laughs> i think didn't you get ben sass talking about bigfoot erotica i did and he was he, <laughs> he was sort of like ron burgundy jumping into the bear pit he was yeah. like i immediately regret my decision <laughs> and uh there's this there's this congressman what's his name riggleman who i really want to get on who had a bit of a controversy when he ran in 2018 in virginia because it turns out he had a running joke about bigfoot erotica with his friends and he <laughs> Apparently, he even created like some sort of Bigfoot erotica webpage or something like that. And uh, but this is not why you're here. You know, your next book is Bigfoot erotica. Right. That's that's the next one. Yeah. <laughs> so um, you're here because your book Backlash is opening is being released June 25th. Correct. So this may or may not open day of or day after or something like that. This podcast um, is your ninth. 19th? 19th, yep. Political thriller is yep. your preferred term? Yes, that's the term. You betcha. And I, I will I will be honest. So I love these kinds of books. I've read several of yours. I haven't read all 19. My apologies. It occurs to me, I, I got to go back and read your first one, Lines of Lucerne, because mm -hmm. I am a, one of my strange obsessions is Swiss militarism. Oh, wow. I really love that stuff. Okay. And um, I'm always a big defender of Switzerland during World War II visa, com compared to Austria. Sure. I'm always very cross about how Austria got claimed first victim status when they welcomed the Nazis with ticker tape mm -hmm. parades. Yeah. You know, and the Swiss had a tougher time of it. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. But that was your first book, right? It was Yeah, yeah. And actually a thriller and based on a real story, my wife and I on our honeymoon, I she'd asked me, What would you regret on your deathbed never having done? And I said, becoming an author. Writing a book and getting it published, uh, at that point I had a travel show on public television called Traveling Light because I thought traveling and seeing the world uh, made me a better American. I really realized how lucky right. we were and how good we had it here. Uh, so I told my wife on our honeymoon I wanted to write books, and she said, when we get home, you start spending two hours a day, make it happen. And we were in Amsterdam waiting for our hotel room to get ready. And we were in a smoking cafe. a lot of weed. You smoke a lot. Oh man, yeah, it's a lot of ganja. And there was a, um, a copy of the International Herald Tribune uh -huh. sitting on the table next. Dearly to me. departed. Yeah, dearly departed. Uh, it was great. I used to read it all the time when I was in Europe. And there was a little article in there about a Swiss intelligence officer who had embezzled all this money from the uh, Swiss army mm -hmm. and was training his own shadow militia high in the Alps with high tech weapons from his own private arsenal. And I said, that's what my book's going to be about. Huh. And so it was on the honeymoon that I said I'm going to do it, and then I got that idea, and that so the whole Swiss thing came from that real story. Is that your the normal part of your process? Is you you have some sort of epiphany, little 
factoid vignette that all of a sudden, ah, that's that's the hamster that's going to spin the wheel? There's a, Yeah, there's a little seed of that. People say, where do you get your ideas? And I say, in the shower or after the second glass of bourbon. You right. know, it's normally when I'm finally relaxed and, and it comes so around out. around two in the afternoon. <laughs> right. <laughs> when the sun is warm. Yeah, right about. That's when it starts uh, to start kicking in all the creative juices. So, yeah, so that's, uh, that's a little bit about the background. And uh, Backlash is the 19th book. Uh, and I do tell people that it's like the James Bond movies. Right. You don't need to have seen all the Bond movies or any of them to appreciate the most recent ones. So if you haven't read me and you want to start with Backlash, you absolutely can. Yeah, so it's so how many of them have Scott Harvath as the central character? So 18 of them. Okay. And then he, uh, one year I did two books. I did a book about a all-female Delta Force team and uh, Harvath made a quick appearance in there just as a bridge for uh-huh. longtime readers. So sort of walk on cameo. Kind yeah, of exactly. Yeah. Exactly. TV's Don Knotts. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, because it was funny. I, full disclosure, I love these kind of things. I grew up, I loved Ludlum. Me too. You know, and when I became a wonkier type person, I gave up reading for pleasure for mm. long stretches of time. And uh, just because, you know, by the end of the day, reading all the egghead stuff, my lips were so tired. I was just, the last thing I want to do is just, and, but I used to block off Augusts when I would leave D.C., which I recommend to everybody who can manage to do it, and not, not just because D.C. is equatorial in August. So the last time I read, so Harlan Coben, who I'm also a fan Sure, of, yeah, no, and I know Harlan. He's a great guy. Um, he's another sort of Twitter friend, yeah, you know, kind yeah. of thing. And Brad Thor, these are the guys who's like, in August, I would just, because one of the things that's great about him is... It's sort of, I mean, I, and I do not mean this in a condescending way at all, because I know this stuff is hard. I grew up, and you know, my mom was a literary agent. I grew up around all this stuff. Mm-hmm. It's sort of chewing gum for smart people. Well, and that's exactly, my job is to entertain you. Right. So probably, a shameless plug here, my most favorite style of email I get is people say, I bought one of your books, gave it to my dad, who, who wasn't a reader. Now he loves to read. Or I yeah. gave it to my sister, or our niece took it, or our cousin Eddie read it and just loved it. Now he's reading all your books. That's that's music to an author's ears. I'm, sure. It's not supposed to be heavy. What I do is fun, action on page one. Every, you get to short, crisp, cinematic chapters, you know, three pages, maybe four. That's not that often. And you're just flying through the book and you can't believe it. And then in these stories, I weave in – so I call it faction where you don't know where the facts end and right. the fiction begins. And I weave in – interesting things that I've found during the course of the year that I'm when I'm researching for the book. So you close it having had a great white knuckle thrill ride. Uh, that's terrific. But if you've learned a little something about the way the espionage community works or uh, particularly in backlash, I did something about an Obama program. Well, I don't want to I don't want to get sure. a, I, I could just backlash 30,000 foot view. My main character, Scott Harvath, is a covert operative, does a lot of the dangerous work for the government uh, to keep their fingerprints off stuff. So he's off book all the time. Um, and he's been a real pain in uh, thorn in the side of the Russians. Mm-hmm. And they decide he's thwarted so many things over the years. They're going to risk everything. They're going to come to the East Coast and they're going to grab him and put a bag over his head, drag him back to Russia. So the two real life things I was. Uh, and so for readers, that's not a huge spoiler. That's no. You're about 10 pages. I'm about 125 pages in, and that's like six pages in. You know, that right. that's the premise from day right one, away, one. Yeah. Right away. So the action starts on page one. So the two things I studied for this book that I didn't know anything about or didn't know a lot about was what kind of training do our uh, soldiers – 
uh, airmen, Marines, what do they get when they're trapped behind enemy lines? Right, the seer so, training. Seer school. So survive, evade, resist, escape training. And then the other thing is there was a program started under Barack Obama uh, when James Foley got uh, taken by ISIS mm-hmm. and got killed uh, because there was kind of this juggle. Who's going to handle trying to track him down, get him back? Who's in charge? Is it the CIA? Is it the State Department? All this kind of stuff. So they put together a hostage recovery fusion cell at the FBI where they had uh, desks for every different agency. Treasury could talk to NSA. They could talk to the FBI and they would share information in trying to find ways to bring pressure to bear on the captors, even if it was a nation state. Mm-hmm. So can we freeze assets for Iran to force them to give up the, the Christian pastor, that kind of thing? Trump has held it over and has injected it with steroids. So it's gr- it was a great program under Obama. It's even better now under President Trump. In fact, the, the book is dedicated, Backlash is dedicated to the current special presidential envoy for hostage of Fairs, uh, Robert O'Brien, who I've known since college. So I got a neat insider look at it without revealing any top secret information. But I was fascinated by what kind of machinery gets kicked off. What what do we do if we lose an American, number one? But what if it's one of our top guys who's got all the secrets? Right. You know, we need to get them back before they break them, that kind of a thing. And the idea that they would be looking at how could we hurt the captors financially while they're also talking to the SEAL teams and Delta Force and saying, if we can pinpoint them, can we get them out? And the fascinating thing on the on the SEALs and Delta Force special operations side was, as I always thought it was needle in a haystack. And right. all these guys told me, no, no, we just need to find the haystack. Right, right, right. Find the haystack. We'll get the needle. It's yeah. not about the needle in the haystack. So I'm trying to figure out whether I should go with the, the making of the sausage or stick with the sort of the faction part of it. Um, on the making of the sausage part, you know, one of the things you used the phrase cinematic before about short mm-hmm. cinematic mm-hmm. chapters. I was trying to think like, do you have any idea who invented that stop? Because it, it feels a little bit like going back to the um, sort of yeah, I know who invented it. Ed- Edgar Rice Burroughs. They did these serial even further back. Yeah. So it was the Count of Monte Cristo, oh, which was okay, serialized yeah. in a French newspaper. Yeah. And the idea was is that you got a chapter. Right. Every edition, and it would make you come back and buy the newspaper. And everyone had to end with a cliffhanger. Right. Yeah. So that was it. So that I always say that the the Count of Monte Cristo was the original cliffhanger. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Now that that yeah. that works because I remember I, I had the same feeling reading this that I, I I loved the Tarzan books when I was a kid. Sure. And every chapter ended with oh my gosh I got to find out what happens even though it's just a page away you know right. and. Um, there's a lot of that going on in here. And that's my goal. I want you to flip those pages fast and everything. Right. And we talked about the Sear School stuff. That the, the premise of this book is people go through Sear School and they they understand that they may only get one shot at escape. And right. you have to be ready for it and you have to take it. So this book opens with the, the guy having been taken. It was pretty bloody, a lot of action. He instantly, in the beginning of the book, gets his one shot, and it's all about taking that one shot, and can he escape, and the United States government figures out he's been taken, but they don't know where he is, so this race is on for the U.S. to find him and help him get out, and he's trying to make it out of this country where he's been flown off to. In cinematic uh, terms, he's both the hero and the MacGuffin. Yes, yes, he is. That's true. That's good. MacGuffin's a great... I learned about that when I studied film and television at uh, USC. And so, all right, so just... You hang out, hang out a lot with these elite guys and the FBI guys and all the rest, and you do all your research. So, the one question, one question that sort of I find glaring in it is the Scott Harvath character, sort of like James mm-hmm. Bond, has an enormous body count. Yes, that, you know, um, yes. like he. There are a couple passages in the beginning of the book where. Several people allude to the fact that no one really knows how high it is. You know? <laughs> Killed more people than cancer, yeah. they say. Yeah. And so 
the the thing is, in real life, I mean, the number of operatives who have stars on the wall at CIA is in the uh-huh. mid forties or yeah. something like yeah. that, right? How much on the sort of the black off the radar stuff are American forces or American operatives actually? trading bullets with people from other countries because you would think you would actually hear some of this stuff. Yeah, no, well, we've got we've got rules of engagement. We've you know, it is even when you're actively in war, there are prohibitions. Right. I think of uh I got to when I worked on Rick Perry's campaign in the uh the Republican primaries last time around, I spent a lot of time got to know Marcus Luttrell mm-hmm. because Marcus was on the campaign uh as well uh, introducing then Governor Perry, now Secretary of High Energy, mm-hmm. is what I call him. Uh, just talked to him a week ago. He's a funny guy. Uh, but you know the it's, story. It's Secretary of Nuclear Waste Storage. Is that what the, it is? It's Secretary of Energy. That's like 90% of their job or something. But anyway. Uh, so uh, the story Lone Survivor is very interesting. Whether you saw the movie or read the book by uh, that Marcus did with Patrick Robinson, it's a great, great story. Yeah. You know, here they were trying to collect intelligence on some bad Taliban people in Afghanistan, and a team of goat herders stumbled across them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they didn't want to go to Leavenworth. They didn't want to kill these guys. And these were non-combatants and they, they couldn't kill them. So it, it, these people, these special operators and everything, they are out there doing some of this nation's most dangerous business, but they are abiding by the rules. They're playing right. by the rules. So do we have lots of guys out there trading lots of bullets with other people? No. But there are places where our guys do bump up against other guys. And it is a very gray area that's not necessarily, doesn't necessarily fall under Geneva Hague conventions right. and stuff happens happens. Now, it wouldn't be – I always joke when I have CIA guys read my book and they're like, oh, well, you know, there would be six more cutouts before you got to the action. I said, I'm not writing a training manual. Right, it's right, not right. interesting. I can't have my guy have to have six meetings right. you know, uh, in Georgetown before he gets to the final guy. So I have to speed some stuff up. I take some artistic license with sure. the books because I want it to be exciting. So it is not a how-to book on how right. to be an assassin, how to be a spy. I'm trying to distill the stuff down. Uh, but it's funny. I make up stuff and then I'll let the guys read it mm-hmm. before I – I send it to the publisher even, and they're like, hey, Thor, that one thing on 32, out. I can't be in there. I'm like, that's like, – we're not confirming or not. We're just saying it can't be in the book. I'm like, wow, I made it up, and it's real. Like, sure, Jack, the robots are coming for you. <laughs> I took that out of the book, but they're coming. So my, my before we move on to grander vistas, so one of my great, incredibly nerdy complaints about the entire action genre and I completely understand what you're saying about it, how you, you have to move that the plot along and you can't get bogged down on things. But like I recently rewatched The Fugitive, which I love. Right? The Harrison Ford? Yeah. Yeah. And so did I. You know the scene where he jumps off the dam? Oh, right? Nobody would have survived that. Yeah. So, well, But here's the thing. I am willing to sort of concede he has to survive it. Otherwise, the movie's over right, in like right, right, minutes, right, right? Right. But he couldn't break a pinky. Yeah, you know, he yeah have a limp. Yeah, right? a, limp, you know, a little bit of a limp. You know, and that's the thing that sort of like, or like in movies in particular, if you've ever been punched in the face, you know you actually bruise and swell up, and they have yeah. these guys trading blows, yeah. and there's no physical damage to them whatsoever. That kind of stuff kind of drives me crazy. And, and so, like, there's some scenes in this where you know at least Harvard is talking about how much pain he's yeah he's looking for painkillers that kind of stuff. Yeah. yeah but but i do try to be very i try to be very very authentic and real so i will not let him take like blows to the face and have two black eyes and yet he's got to walk down a street right, you right. know in in brussels and nobody's supposed to pay any attention to him right. I, so i'll avoid him getting hit in the face yeah because i want to be honest i mean it, it, it's interesting mark twain said and i love this that the difference between fiction and reality is that fiction has to make sense right no, readers right. expect that so you have to really be honest and i say all the time when i'm at book 
uh, book signing events and everything that I don't work for Simon & Schuster. I work for the readers. Right. And when they leave reviews on Amazon or Goodreads or whatever, that's my annual performance review. I want five stars. I want them to be super, super happy. So I do that by telling them the truth and keeping them entertained and trying to get the details right. That's really important to me. And that's – I think the details are the bedrock of a thriller because you are – it's harder to read a book than to watch a movie. Oh, sure. It it takes – a lot of self-discipline. you got to have time. And you can go out and make the $25 again to buy a new hardcover, but you can't get that time back. Right. So as a good Midwestern man who was raised by a United States Marine, it's just the values we were taught growing up. It's important to me that I treat every day on the job as if it's my first day right. on the job. 19th book, could I get a contract with Simon & Schuster based on the strength of this book if they didn't know who I was. Mm-hmm. So that kind of stuff is important to me. So, But it all comes down to the readers, and they're going to suspend their disbelief. But I'm I'm really finicky if I'm because re- I read my genre all the time. If you put a safety on a Glock, that's lazy writing. I'm pissed off that you don't know enough about guns right, right. that you put a safety on a Glock. Right. So, okay, that's one strike. I'll give you three strikes. I won't – my wife will finish any book no matter, no matter how bad. She is a right. saint. She's looking for redemption at that. I will toss a book. You get three strikes, and if you're that lazy, stuff yeah. that you could easily find just with Google. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm out. No, and I think that's it's important because you have a relationship with readers, whether you're writing fiction or nonfiction. And the thing, you know, this is one of the reasons why when people when I go do speeches, one of my very few rules is I will not speak to an audience on a subject that the audience is more expert on than I am. Oh, that's, you know, well, that's smart. Well, but sometimes you know you get these corporate things where you know they want you to talk i once gave a speech it was supposed to be just about politics but it was to a the trade association for large earth moving equipment <laughs> and someone asked me about the tax abatement in the bill pending before the commerce committee about the oh, depreciation wow. rate of something oh, <laughs> and i was like like i never want to be in that position you have, we have to be very clear that i don't know your stuff better right. than you know it but right. you have to have a certain amount of respect for your reader or your listener or your viewer or whoever to show that you're doing the due diligence and you're assuming that they're smart people and they know. And it's a breach of trust problem, you know, yes. and you have to maintain it. So uh, speaking of breach of trust. Uh, I'm fully prepared to pay back the loan. I know I'm late. <laughs> I know I promised and I said you'd have the money by today. Dude, I'm, I'm taking care of your dog. And, <laughs> okay. You, know. you got to promise me the dog comes back unharmed. I'm only seeing Pippa in the videos. Hey, I'm not seeing my dog. Hey, speaking there was of unharmed, no proof of life. Uh, speaking of unharmed dogs, you know. I stopped on Lake Harding in Alaska reading your book in part because my wife was making fish tacos and I had to help. Mm. But in part because I was in the part where wolves were getting shot. And ah. I winced Ooh. at that because I'm a, I'm, I'm a big wimp when it comes to killing cute things. Uncute things kill them all you want. But, they've um, been going after people in that particular part of Russia. It's yeah. been a problem because they've been starving. Yeah. So the well, polar bears are coming in because the ice is melting and all this kind of stuff. So there's villages where they've actually been going after people and they pack up, sometimes small packs, pack into bigger packs. I mean it's really it, – that stuff in the book was legit, but yeah. I'm, I'm glad that it was written in such a way that you actually winced, yeah. well, that it I'm, resonated with you. You know, I'm, I'm pro-wolf. Oh, you're so pro-wolf. I'm just going to put it out there. And, and it, may, it makes some of my, my listeners angry because they um, – because I'm, I'm a staunch what? opponent of bear propaganda. <laughs> they think that therefore I must also be against like reintroducing – No, I like, I like wolves and uh-huh. I'm anti, anti-wolf. anti There so... you go. OK, fair enough. There you go. But no, I was saying uh, – speaking of breach of trust um, – I think it's fair to say in broad brushstrokes, you and I share certain misgivings about the state of the Republican Party <laughs> and uh, the, the, the current head of the Republican Party. Oh. And uh, I'm going to just open another beer. And um, uh, We need a gif of that because that's a 40 cal. In my, I've only seen Jake <laughs> Tapper do it. So you need a gif opening that, that Colt 45 like that. That's pretty impressive. Um, 
and uh, so street. Uh, I'm I'm streets ahead. If you have to ask, your streets behind. And so one of the things that was like during the the troubles, as this all built up in 2015 and 2016, mm-hmm. I used to get into arguments with a lot of my friends who had job descriptions that allowed them to sort of be in a safe harbor and stay in a safe lane and not take a side one uh, way or the sure. other, right? Particularly, like, I had friends who were the straight reporter journalist types, and I was so envious of them because my job is to share my opinion. So I couldn't, right. and I'm not going to lie, right? Um, oh, but- by the way, my wife reminds me of that all the time. Jonah actually gets paid to share his opinion. <laughs> you get paid to write books. So, and you kind of stepped out of your lane a little bit. Oh, I stepped out way and- far. I would have to think that the universe of Brad Thor readers is disproportionately Republican, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I've got plenty of liberals that enjoy the books and everything. But sure no, I would, do, but... I would say that if you, you went to a big event for one of my book signings and everything and were able to kind of lift wallets while nobody was looking and look at voter registration cards, you'd probably find yeah, it. It's already it, was right a center. It has to be somewhat pro-military, right? It has to be And that's, yeah, this idea of projecting stuff. American power abroad and in the value system and that we can't have the American dream without those being willing to protect it. Yeah. It, I, I don't think there's a lot of – in all three of Bernie's houses, I don't think you're going to find one of my right, books. right. Yeah. The Venn diagram has very few people in it in the overlap section who say, oh, crap, there's a Brad Thor book signing and a Maya Angelou book signing the same day. <laughs> which, Which one am I going to go to? Right. That's that's my only point. And so how have you dealt with it? How much – how pissed off are your readers? How non-pissed off are no, you? How much what? forgiveness do you get? It's, a, it's, a, it's an excellent, excellent question uh, because – Back to my dad and my mom. So my dad, no longer active Marine. He went to college on the GI Bill, Northern Illinois University. My mom was a flight attendant for TWA, the glamour days in the 60s, New York, Paris, Paris, New York was the route she flew. And they raised us to be active members of this republic. Mm -hmm. That's where I learned that I'm not just a citizen. I'm a steward. And it is incumbent upon us to leave a stronger, freer, more successful, more prosperous, more secure nation to the next generation than was left to us. And I got apologies for the debts and deficits and lots of talk about why we had to be responsible with our finances and all this kind of stuff. So there's a reason that when the tyrants decide they want to solidify power. They come after the journalists, the artists, the writers, because we have a way of distilling thoughts into whether it's pithy sentences, easy to remember things. We we can distill arguments and we can make very powerful arguments because we take complicated things and we explain it to people so they understand. Now, James Madison, that he said it was incumbent upon people to explain to their fellow citizens how government works. It was particularly incumbent upon politicians right. to explain how and why things are going. It's one thing for you to have passions, you group of voters, but as politicians, uh, they need to weigh the, the passions of the of the people, of the voters, against what was good for the republic. And we can get into the the Federalist Papers as you and I were chatting about off air. Because we're so cool. Uh, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's, we started right there. Yeah. <laughs> started right with the, hey – yeah, Federalist 10, 63. <laughs> yeah, it's almost like the secret globalist handshake, right? We've That's got right. a little passwords. and <laughs> But character matters to me. Character matters to my dad, the Marine. And I had worked last time around for Rick Perry's campaign and the time before that for Rick Santorum's campaign. Mm-hmm. Not, necessarily, not necessarily for any social conservatism because that's not where I am. I'm a fiscal, fiscal conservative. Mm-hmm. I believe certain things like the family is the building block of society and all this kind of stuff. But I'm also very – you know what? The government can't do anything right and the last thing it ought to be doing is telling people how to live their lives. Right. So I believe you know the government that governs least governs best. So I've been active in 
in politics because my parents told me that's my responsibility. That is my responsibility to help explain how it works, all this kind of stuff. So did I piss off readers? Yeah. And you're on social media. You understand. They, they, they make their voices heard. And then there's just a subset of just absolutely shitty people mm. that are on social media. I mean, it really, I, I don't remember a lot of Bill O'Reilly quotes from when he was, and he was very kind to me, by the way. Bill O'Reilly used to have me on a bunch. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I remember stuff from the books, but personally, one of the quotes that he had, and I don't remember a ton that I loved, was he just referred to Twitter as an open sewer. <laughs> he said it was like, you know, just all this junk floating by. And it's true. So, yeah, when Barack Obama was in and I was complaining about things he did, whether it was not getting behind the green revolution in Iran, right. it took him two weeks to come out with a very tepid uh, statement in support of it. Yet within 24 hours of the dictator in waiting being ousted, the president of Honduras, he was supporting that guy. Right. Uh, now, little did we know that he was trying to work the Iran deal and doing the love letters back and forth with the mullahs. But I'm looking at this going every time there's a choice between freedom and tyranny, he sides with the tyrants. Right. I don't get this. Why are we not helping these young Iranians? Uh, and we're paying the price for that right now. Or even just rhetorically, right? I mean, right. I, you can make a real politic argument about how much material aid you want to give to uh, the Green Revolution. Right. But Reagan always understood, even if there were national security concerns, rhetorically. And rhetoric matters. Words it's matter, nice. oh. right? You know, um, They used to. Yeah, I mean, the, the stories about, like, Natan Sharansky hearing clips of Reagan in, in his jail mm-hmm. cell. I mean, mm-hmm. these things matter. And Obama didn't do that. And, you know, Trump last week... The most he would say about the protests in Hong Kong was that the crowds were very large and they seemed to be having an impact. I mean, that's not, you know, yeah, rhetoric. I, I, so back to what happened with not being a, a, mm-hmm. a Trump supporter. I mean, Politico put me on a list of one, like the one, you were on the list too, like the 100 original never Trumpers, and, yeah. which was like wanted posters put up all <laughs> over the place. I hear Seb Gorka has a deck of playing cards with our pictures on it. <laughs> the, the dragon of Budapest. Yeah. It's like those guys in Iraq. Yeah. Uday and Kuse and, and Saddam. You know, and I had people really vehemently disagree with me, but, and that's fine. I mean, that's, that's free and healthy debate in a republic, but it got nasty really quick. And what was interesting was how many friendships I lost. Now, I'm sure I pissed off readers, and I was always one looking at Hollywood going, you know, shut up and sing. Right. Don't inject your politics. And I was doing the same thing. I mean, to be to be fair, sure. I was doing, you know, I'm in the entertainment business, and I'm injecting myself into politics. I'm choosing, you know, candidates during primaries. I'm going out. I mean, I crisscrossed Iowa with Santorum, mm-hmm. introduced him at rallies and all this kind of stuff, and I introduced uh, Governor Perry. I stood on stage next to him when he mm-hmm. declared. So... It did upset some of my readers. What was more profound were my friends that were so upset. There's people I like. I just watched the Hot Zone. I don't know if you saw the – it was like a six-part thing. I think it was Amazon or Showtime about the monkey house in Reston, Virginia and how Ebola came in and how they had to track it and all this kind of stuff. I haven't seen it. Well, it's interesting because Nick Searcy is in that. I used mm-hmm. to be friends with Nick. I, and, I was friendly with him too. Yeah. And I like him. And he, he's in it. And by the way, if you have not seen The Hot Zone, mm-hmm. Juliana Margulies, Nick Searcy is fantastic. And I'd love to tell him, but we're not speaking. Yeah. He was also briefly really good in The Fugitive. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I mean, Nick, he's a fabulous, fabulous actor. And it's yeah. funny because he, you know, I had muted him for all the anti-Trump stuff or all the pro-Trump stuff. But he would find stuff in my Twitter feed when I would call out the character of Donald Trump or mm-hmm. whatever. And it just – he was – and then his people would get in my feed and start sure, stirring sure. it up. And I finally private messaged with Nick and I'm like, Nick, 
if it's giving you this much agita, unfollow me. Yeah. Just stop following me. And he goes, oh, I was out playing golf with Adam Baldwin the other day, and we can't understand why you continue to help the Democrats. I'm like, what? Yeah. And he said, you, you criticize the president and help the Democrats. I said, you know what? No. I said, I have a First Amendment right to say whatever I want to say. You don't have to listen to it. And I said, two, Nick, I don't want to lose any more friends over this. And I believe as a steward of the republic, we should be holding our elected officials to a very high level. And if they stumble trying to get there, that's fine. But we don't hold them to any sort of level. So there is this. It's really dis- the ones who, allege, in some sense, speak for our side, quote unquote. Right? Yeah. I mean, you're supposed to hold your own people right. accountable to your own principles to a certain extent. Exactly. Or else they're worthless. Right. So, you know, I think at some point. Nick and I will hug it out. We'll have a beer. I don't think that's going to be anytime soon. And I, I really do like him. He's a brilliant guy. He's a fantastic actor. So anybody who's listening that's friends with Nick, you could say, yeah, Brad was on Jonah's podcast raving about what a good guy you are. Great guy, actually. So I don't want to I don't want to stir up any more trouble. But what I found in now we take Nick Searcy out of it because mm-hmm. he didn't direct particularly a lot of vitriol at me, but he wouldn't unfollow me. And oh, I, he did the same thing with me. And I, I like Nick and we got along. Yeah. You know. And I just I finally had to just say, I, yeah, I can't do this anymore. Just ignore my tweets, please. Right. And he's like, no. I, so it, it's, it's unfortunate because that's the most recent one to mm-hmm. fall apart. And there's been a ton of them. Now, I, not talking about Nick Searcy sure, sure, sure. anymore. We put a pin in that one. What has been interesting is the amount of vitriol reserved on our side for guys like you and me mm-hmm. who want to say, hey, I like the judges, right. but I don't like, you know, why is he fighting with the mayor of London or, you know, I don't even care about the mayor of London, but there's, I'm numb to it all. There's so many examples right. of poor character, poor judgment by President Trump. But there are guys that are, are saying that they reserve more anger and direct more hostility towards people like you and me than they do for their professed enemies on the left. And this idea that as long as it makes liberals cry, right. that's good. That's a good thing. Liberal tears and all this kind of stuff. It's not a good thing. Right. We are the people that are supposed to be sharing and encouraging, bringing people over to our set of ideas. Okay, that's what this is all about. It's not brute force and making your enemy, you know, it's to hear the lamentations of the women that seem to have driven before you or whatever the line is from Conan. But there is a group right of center that that's all they care about is liberal tears making the other side hurt. And you know what? The shoe's going to be on the other foot. The Democrats are going to have control of everything. We have blown such an incredible opportunity for reform. We had all the levers of power. So we had two years. And this is, by the way. I left. I was on C-SPAN Book TV last year. I left the Republican Party. I am no longer a Republican. I won't raise money for them. I will not knock on doors for them because they told me one big lie over and over and over to motivate me, which is, Brad, if we just get control of Congress right. and start working on spending, we get the, if we get full control, House and Senate, and then we put a Republican in, we're going to balance the budget. We're going to get all the debt under control because I'm a big national security guy, and I see right. the debt as a national security issue. So the Republicans only – each party has a lie, okay? So the Republicans' lie is spending and fiscal responsibility. They only talk about getting that in order when they're out of power. Right. When they're in, they don't give a crap. Right. The word that the Democrats use is compromise. Right. When they're out of power, all they want to talk about is compromise. When they're in power, you see something like the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, get passed without a single Republican vote. Right. So they're they're all full of crap. Yeah. And I'm just I'm done with both of them. And well, not done with both of us. Never a Democrat. I'm done with the Republican Party. And it'll be a long time before uh, there's a lot that's got to be done if they're going to attract me back. Yeah, me too. I mean, so I'm just going to get my this 40 out of the cooler here. (laughs) The uh, you know, part of my explanation for all this is that 
politics is taking up a part in our brains that is normally reserved for religion. And so that explains in some ways why the hatred for people like you and me is greater than the hatred for the other side, because if politics is operating you know, psychologically like a religion, that makes us heretics. Mm -hmm. And by pointing out that we're with very few exceptions. I mean, I've changed my attitudes about some things and all the rest. But for the most part, I believe virtually everything I believed about politics in 2014, I still believe today. Mm -hmm. So I was against crony capitalism and the administrative state and ex rampant executive authority and deficits and all. You go down the st sort of standard Tea Party-ish list. That was me, right? And I'd never marched in a rally before the Tea Party. Yeah. I didn't even know how to make a damn sign. I had to go to some hippie website to figure out how to make a placard. <laughs> I've been writing about the perils, the dangers of populism for 20 years. And the Tea Parties were the only populist movement that I ever supported because the Tea Parties represented the ideal of what you would want a populist movement to do, at least the best version of them, which was back to basics, live within our means, restore constitutional norms. You know, it was, it was, it was a correction. Right. It was this, I, it was almost like this fulfillment of libertarian prophecy that they're going to take over the government and leave everybody alone. <laughs> and the Tea Party is, I mean, there's still a lot of good people who were part of all that, but as a broad spectrum thing, it's a hot mess. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of grifters came in. I talked about Jim Garrity about this on the last podcast. But the thing I always want to ask the all-in Trump, the people who go full Gorka, right? Right. And who, you know, what can the next Democratic- The emperor's new clothes. Yeah. It wouldn't do no wrong. What can the next Democratic president do that you won't be a hypocrite for criticizing? And the, that list yeah. is shrinking, you know- By the hour. Yeah. Going into a really ill-conceived deal with Iran- is like one of the last things. And who knows where the certain right now where we're going with Iran, maybe that'll be checked off the list, too. But the you know, I've talked about this a bunch of times on this podcast. My friend David French, fellow mm -hmm. Tennessean, right? Yep. 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 Uh, David and his wife. You know, I left National Review at the beginning of June, but I was of the sort of all in for Trump crowd. I was probably the second most hated writer. Yeah. And David was the first. Mm -hmm. And the reason why David was the first is that a lot of my stuff is like pointing out hypocrisy and making fun of things and just pointing out that the idea that Trump is playing four-dimensional chess is insane. <laughs> hungry, hungry hippos. Yeah. <laughs> um, and what David does is he does this finger-wagging thing very well. I'm not, I don't mean it. He's not being self-righteous, but he says, Jesus is watching you. Yes. And it pings the conscience of these people who wear a lot of their Christianity as an identity politics sort of pose, but don't actually, you know, like... Two days ago, we're recording this a week before this comes out, but two days ago, Donald Trump, his first def his first explanation for why he couldn't have raped this woman, and I don't know if I don't know what the truth is of all that. Right, right. But for me, if I'm accused of rape, my first explanation for why I couldn't have happened isn't going to be, well, she wasn't my, my type. type. Yeah. I mean, and there was a time when, like, I don't if, like blondes. If yeah. Bill Clinton had said that in the 1990s, it would have know, been laughed out of office. And. And so there's just there's, there's been this fire sale of the standard arguments that conservatives are supposed to make in favor of this sort of cult of personality stuff. And so, they, I, so this actually gets to an interesting question. In your books and in the political thriller genre generally, most of the time presidents are serious people. Yes. Right? yes. Sometimes they could be evil or right. they could be purely political and hackish, right. but they're smart and they're right. serious yes. and all that kind of stuff. Yes. Well-informed, they understand how... Right. They read their briefing papers and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Donald Trump blows that up for that genre because it's... 
he doesn't read, right? He doesn't. Which take... is a challenge for me. That's what I was going to ask. Yeah. You know? So it's been a challenge for me. So what I've had, I I used to have lots of scenes in the Situation Room at the White House and all this kind of stuff, and now I get this thing where people, are, no matter what I write, it's either people are saying you're being too kind to Trump or you're being too unkind to Trump. And I'm not talking about Trump at all. It's a fictional president. And right. it was an argument. I, I don't want – I want the books to stand alone. I don't want to have to have that discussion with anybody. So I've really dialed back and not dealt with too much inside the White House politics. I've focused it more kind of at the CIA and the challenges they have there with being very uh, heavy with middle management mm-hmm. and the way decisions are made and kind of the uh, the amount of risk they're willing to take and that kind of stuff. So I, I've really avoided the White House. And so political thrillers, I think if you look throughout going back to Nixon and all that kind of stuff. It really is an interesting window into the time. The challenge for me as somebody who writes a franchise character and and does a book a year is making it so that the books are evergreen. Mm -hmm. So they're not too topical. Like I never wrote about bin Laden because I knew at some point they were going to catch him or they were going to kill him. Um, I want each one of my books. And if you go back and you pick up one of my, you go all the way back to the first one, the lines of Lucerne, you can still have an awesome, awesome thrill ride because I was careful not to put in too many current pop culture references and all that kind of stuff. But it is interesting to watch. Here's one of my favorite things on Twitter, back to kind of the vitriol and all that kind of stuff. So if I'm talking about Trump, I must have a book to sell. And if I'm not talking about Trump, I must have a book to sell. And I'm trying not to create controversy. It's well, that's this. I mean, this is a rich topic of conversation among you know, a lot of my friends for my entire time in public life, that's a grandiose thing. Since I became a full-time writer, the charge that anytime you deviated from the party line, which used to be a ideological line, which I much prefer, it was because you were being accused of wanting to go to Georgetown cocktail, right? Which is a a stand-in for selling out, growing, caring about, you know, the elites and the globalists (laughs) and all the rest. And, it ought to be like a bell that rings. We need a sound effect like every time he says it. Or it ought to be – people at home ought to have to take a shot. You know? That would be take good, although some people would end up dead. Um, <laughs> and the the thing I is- still want to record, by the way, before I leave, I want a recording of you laughing because I want to make that the ringtone. Now that I have your <laughs> cell phone number, I want to have that. So every time I text with Jonah or whatever, it's going to – Yeah, well, yeah, true story. I used to have – in high school, I had a very deep voice for a teenager and, and my giggle – was almost indistinguishable from a Scooby Doo laugh, and <laughs> so like funny. if you're like whispering in the back of the album, <laughs> right, <with your> friend, <laughs> and it took and I, people made fun of me, and so I took years. So this is like oh, wow. this is my polished laugh. Wow, it's, like, it's the equivalent of Joe Biden's stammer. I this is my. This is the best I can do, and people it, give me grief about it. If For those of you listening, if you have not heard the podcast where Jonah's wife is the guest, it is wall-to-wall laughing. It is, and it's very sweet. Yeah, it, is, it, was, it is one of my – that is one of the ones that if you're going to put it in a time capsule, that is one of my favorite podcasts you did was interviewing your wife. Yeah. That was a great episode. Thank you. It took me a year to get her on, and I kept telling her, you don't understand, people will eat it up. People, but Yeah, I didn't think you had a wife. I thought it was my <laughs> girlfriend from summer camp who lives in Canada. So, uh, where were we? Well, you know what, real quick, back to David French. And yeah, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, I think Eric Erickson had a really, to, to argue the other side of evangelical support of Trump, I think it was Eric Erickson. I want to credit him in an article, and if it wasn't, I apologize to whoever the author was, but it was a brilliant, brilliant rationalization, a look at the mindset of evangelicals that came out hardcore for Trump. And let's just say it was Eric that said it. 
and what he said was, is that evangelicals have been under siege Mm -hmm. and it wasn't enough for the left to beat them on the battlefield. They then had to go hunt them down house to house. Christian Baker by Christian Baker, wedding photographer by wedding photographer. They were going to kill them all. And Trump was the first one that came along, even with two Corinthians and all that kind of stuff that they believed was actually going to fight for them. I can understand that. No, I, I can I, understand it. I, I, I don't think that I think you can still say I want this guy to fight for me. But let's not pretend he's you know, that's what bugs me is that there is a group of people that feel they have to be either all in or all out. Right. That there is no criticisms. Uh, they won't brook any. And that's that's a problem. That's no, I agree. Right. I'm not resistance either. Yeah. I'm not, a, I, you know, and I, I don't call myself never Trump anymore either. Um, it's it's that insult that gets thrown around. It's so it's so funny. I saw like a handful of tweets today about it. And I'm like, really? I mean, come on. Yeah. I've even gotten a tweet from the president when I complimented him. On, and it was probably Dan Scavino. It probably <laughs> wasn't Donald Trump because uh, it was perfectly spelled. The punctuation was excellent and everything. But I got a tweet because I was on Dana Perino's show. And I said, listen, I think he actually did a good job with this limited strike in Syria yeah. that he did early on. I, that, that crap should not be going on on the patio at Mar-a-Lago. That's sloppy. That, sure. that kind of looseness. So I, I think it's fair. I think fair-minded people... People can can agree and can disagree. That's fair-minded people. We've got a lot of people that are not fair-minded. You just can't. Disagree. Yeah, but th- th- this gets the problem of the open sewer stuff. And and I've made this argument more often than I've said globalist. But um, drink <laughs> the the transactional case for supporting Trump. I think is utterly intellectually defensible. I sure. I will disagree and get into arguments about the cost benefits and all the rest. But if your position is, look, we're getting these judges. He's not Hillary Clinton, which is his real mandate. Yeah. He's we got the corporate tax cuts, which I'm in favor of. The individual stuff, less so. We got good things out of this because we had Republican control. We didn't get everything we wanted and all the rest. That's fine. If you want to make the case that it was worth the cost-benefit analysis to have Trump and it's even worth the cost-benefit analysis to have him for another four years, I totally understand that. What bothers me is that in the world of the sort of, you know, the the – and I, I, I use Gorka as a stand-in because he's such a cartoon figure that it, it's it, people know where I'm coming from with that. Oh, Jonah. <laughs> um, in that crowd, you're not actually allowed to make the transactional case. You can't say, hey, I really like this policy. I wish you wouldn't do this. Right. but Or, you know, we're, we're turning off young voters but in droves. Yep. Or, you know, we're setting up the Republican Party for long-term problems, but I really like this policy. You can't make it. You have to say everything that he does is brilliant yeah. and – that's basically asking me to lie, and that's what I just I won't do. And it bothers I me. Mean, look, I, I I love Bill Bennett. Bill Bennett was sort of an uncle of mine. I mean, you talk about Nick Searcy. I still have deep, deep affection for Bill. I saw Bill on Martha McCallum's show a couple months ago say about Donald Trump. Well, the one you know, one of the great things about him is he doesn't prevaricate. <laughs> and I I know words. I have some of the best words, as the president might yeah. say. You know, and, and best brain, best. I, words. By the way, backlash cover to cover, the best words. <laughs> My new um, novel in the best order. That's in the, the best order. Always forget. You yeah. can have great yeah. words, but if they're not in the right order, it doesn't really matter. <laughs> I mean, the dictionary has all of the best words. You know, but I had this momentary panic. I was like, oh my god, I don't know what prevaricate means. I thought it meant lie, and I like literally, I went to the Google machine to look it up because I couldn't believe that Bill Bennett was saying that Trump doesn't prevaricate. And the but the the pressure on people to toe the party line, particularly you know among my friends, I'm a Fox News contributor. Yep. The talk radio world. Where it is just everyone has to sort of at least Lindsey Graham is doing it because he is trying to get reelected. 
Right. There's actually, you're going to be on with Guy Benson a little bit. Yeah. Probably too far afield to talk about on a show, but there's a wonderful exchange between Guy Benson, who I have a lot of respect for. He's a good guy. And, and who's also very much like us. Criticized oh, I, and I've of, been friends you know, with him yeah. for, for years. I love Guy. But there's this great exchange between him and Mike Gallagher, another guy I've been friends with for a long time. Talk yeah, radio. Talk radio. I know Mike. Yeah. Uh, not the cheese eating guy from the Wisconsin eight, who's also a frequent guest on our podcast. And um, <laughs> you can find it on the Google machine. Mike says to Guy at some point in a conversation about, you know, some punditry stuff. Well, you know, you have a bias you should probably disclose or something like this that. went viral. I remember. Yeah, this. And Guy says, what are you talking about? He says, well, you were anti-Trump. You were never Trump. And and Guy's like, well, look, m- my job is to to tell people what I believe to be true and go where the facts take me as I see them and all the, all the stuff that I believe. Right. And Mike totally sincerely says, no, 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 that's not your job. Your job is to represent the views of your audience. <laughs> and it's a real, it's a sincere dis- disagreement. Right. But I think it's one of the things that helps you understand, first of all, why podcasts are exploding and radio is in real trouble. Because radio is monetizing fan service to the audience. I mean, that, why, why else get rid of Mike Medved and replace him with Seb Gorka? Right, right. And right. Yeah. podcasts, you actually have conversations where you can have a nuanced position and, and, and all of the rest. But this, this is one of the real – and it's a problem of success on the right. The right is in so much better shape in terms of its media infrastructure and all of the political infrastructure than it was 40 years ago, and people mm-hmm. don't really recognize that. Mm-hmm. But the problem is that you then get locked into this business model, which says – that French intellectual who said, you know, the people have chosen and I must go with them for I am their leader. <laughs> um, you get a lot of that stuff yeah. on talk radio, and you get a lot of that stuff – on the sort of I, listen, I saw it. I used to love Drudge, and I would go to Drudge a thousand times a day. And then several years ago, when Rand Paul won the straw poll uh, at CPAC, he didn't even post the yeah. announcement. And I said, "Okay, I've been hearing from some friends that have been getting turned off that there's a little bit of an agenda here. That's a news item. Rand Paul won the straw poll right. at CPAC, and Drudge didn't run it. Drudge didn't run it, and that was a shift for me." Uh, and I like Drudge because Andrew Breitbart had been a really good friend of mine. And, mine too. Uh, so, and I did some writing at the bigs and things like that. Um, so I started to realize, yeah, there's there's biases that creep into the work on our side too. And people have an agenda mm-hmm. and they want to serve an audience and, and all that kind of stuff. It has been probably one of the most interesting revelations or, or revelations. One of the biggest lies to be uncovered about Trump that really bothered me was the letter of intent for a Trump Tower in Moscow. Mm-hmm. Okay, I worked on Perry's campaign. I cannot speak for Rick Perry or the campaign managers or anything. I would have made a big deal out of that. Yeah. I would have made a huge deal out of that. The payments to the porn star and the Playboy model and all that kind of stuff, I would have made a big deal out of that, particularly from a campaign finance situation. Those are Issues that should have been discussed during the primaries. Now, maybe Trump would have just blasted everybody out of the water. Little Marco, you should be so lucky to have a women. I've had better looking women than you. You know, it it would it would be very lowbrow. But I don't like the fact that those came up afterwards. And almost more disturbing. uh, And I'm trying to steer clear of what is it? God wins the law. The first person to mention Nazism. But as you and I talked about off air, by the way, I wanted to set up, I was so, I love this podcast, but I was worried that I didn't bring enough intellectual firepower. (laughs) And I was going to ask for a safe word, maybe something, something globally like Pomplamoose. That could be my safe word if I felt uncomfortable with where the discussion was going. But so growing up with a lot of Jewish friends in Chicago, uh, in not liking history because uh-huh. it was taught so poorly. I always looked at 1930s Germany, not 
at the Nazi side of things, but I always wondered, how did German people get so intellectually intimidated into stopping, stopping this thing? Because I had always grown up, you know, my parents in Buckley and all this kind of stuff, standing atop the wall, yelling stop and all this kind of stuff. And it was very interesting. And so to see people so easily excuse bad conduct, I'm not saying anybody who supports Trump is a Nazi. I'm not go. Sure. I'm not going. No, I don't there. think that either. But. You, I, I, I constantly – I had a gift that I constantly kept putting on Twitter during the primaries of uh, Mussolini on the balcony with his arms crossed. Like <laughs> but it was such a Trump mannerism. Yeah. And, uh, and it was funny because people were like, oh, you're calling him Hitler. You're calling – I said, no, no. I've always been fascinated by – there's that book, uh, True Believer, mm-hmm. uh, which is fascinating. It looks at the mindset of people who are willing to just fall into the slipstream right. and not question anything. And as I as I started reading more, because I don't want to say people are Nazis. That is intellectually lazy. I was interested in 1930s Germany, how you could take people who thought they had a raw deal, mm-hmm. that were getting it stuck to them by the globalists. And after World War One, and Germany had this bad deal. And, you know, we're going to bring jobs back. We're going to make your lives. There were a lot of, as you and I talked about off air, uh, Francis Fukuyama, history doesn't repeat, but it does rhyme. And there was a great article in Foreign Policy magazine that said everybody that's looking to kind of national socialism and fascism is is wrong mm-hmm. for their cues at where we are in history. And you ought to be looking at the caudillos of Latin America. Yeah. These guys that everything gets gold leaf. Right. They trade in the old fattening up wife for the young hot wife. It's all about the, sh- the size of my schwantz and all yeah, this yeah. kind of stuff. You know, and I ride a motorcycle. It's, 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 you know, some of the stuff Putin does. You know, yeah. the shirt's never on and that kind of stuff. The machismo. We should be grateful that Trump is not followed. Right. We should be. Well, he is a very svelte. He's not obese. What is he, like uh, six foot three, 175? Is that what Ronnie, uh, the, the White House surgeon, said he was? So as a conservative, as somebody who now is an adult, loves history and looks for cues this kind of blinders this this it's kind of like no 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 i'm not going to listen to you you know that kind of a thing just blows me away from again people who i've known and respected and there are just some people that have like we've said have gone all in for for trump and that's fine they're adults that's their decision they've made this they've made i think sometimes it's a business decision for some of my friends who are in media that have gone all Mm -hmm. in for him and i just drew a line and I just said, I'm not going to argue with this. This will pass. There's going to be a Democrat. You're going to go back to hating the Democrat and you'll come back to conservatism. I don't want to lose any more friends over this. Yeah. You are more important to me as a friend. I think you are a good thinker and a good communicator of conservative ideas and what policy should be before he came along. And I think you will be again after he's going to go. Well, and I want to still be your friend. Yeah. No, I feel the same way. And my problem is, is that we live in an age where – whether you call it religion or you just call it sort of internalized tribalism, tribalism, where people, they consider their political position to be an expression of their true meaning as a human being. And so when you disagree with them, they take it personally in a way that it's not supposed to work that way in a liberal democracy, right? You're supposed to be able to say, look, I think your math is wrong, but that doesn't make you evil. And now everyone wants to say, um, you know, that if you're on the... um, other side of a political question, you're a bad person. And I don't think that's true of the vast majority. I'm not a deplorable guy. You know, I don't think that's true of most Trump supporters. But I have Trump supporters in my family. So do I. Close friends. So do I. And I love them dearly. And I just don't – the the character – and what's interesting though is I'll talk about character 
And, oh, you only care, care about style. And I said, well, character matters and how we treat our allies matters. Sure. You know, I'm a big believer in NATO has been one of the greatest forces for good post-World War II. I mean, you, it is, there are so many good things that are being frittered away, so much currency that it's taken blood and decades to build up around the world that he's just blasting through like a bull in a china shop. And then I'll have relatives say, but the judges, you know, but, yeah, yeah. and but Hillary, I get it. I get it. But Everything is a Flight 93 election then from right. now on. It right. is a binary. We will never, ever be able to do anything but Flight 93 elections. And that to me is See, I, not how it's supposed to work. So a standard line, which you hear from a lot of people who sort of see things the same way as you and I do, is some variant of, thank God he's not a chess master, right? I mean, he's actually, because he's, you know, my standard line is he tweets like an escape monkey from a cocaine study, right? <laughs> He's, he's a glandular guy. He lives in the moment. He brags about it. I mean, people say I'm being unfair, but he has said in countless interviews that he doesn't do prep for summits, right? right. right? Yeah. He goes, goes in, with his he wants, gut. He wants to read the room and go with his instincts, yeah. right? And we've had Nick Eversat on here who's, you know, will talk you blue in the face about how the North Koreans, they script, they, they dry run summits and diplomatic overtures over and over again, from the Olympics to, you know, arms control stuff, all of that. And the idea that you're just going to walk in the room and read the room and be able to tell, you know, how to get the best deal based upon what your gut says. Remember in the, the deposition, Trump said his net worth depended on how he felt that. Right. Day, yes. Right? Yep. So, I mean, he very much is – I mean, I'm not sure he knows who Rousseau is, but he very much reflects this sort of Rousseauian notion that his feelings are the ultimate source of authority, the ultimate source of legitimacy. And, you know, so I used to say all the time, thank God he doesn't have Pappy Cannon's brain. Like, because <laughs> if he had Pappy Cannon's brain yeah. and Trump's appeal, the things he could do could be much different. Yeah. There's a flip side to that. Um, when, because Trump has no coherent ideological position, if you're going to support Trumpism, it always ends up being supporting Trump. Right. Because if you try to stake out, you know, we've seen a bunch of egghead journals try to stake out this sort of philosophically rich expl explication of what Trumpism is, and they always get screwed. Yeah. I remember mean, my, my yeah. friend Michael Brennan Doherty, who's a wonderful, sweet guy and a true, you know, sort of benign nationalist. He's all into his Irish stuff, and I, I love Michael a great deal. I remember giving him a hard time. I was like, because Trump had given a, said at a rally, you know, I'm supposed to say I'm a conservative, but I'm not. I'm really a nationalist. A nationalist. Right? Yeah, I remember that. And I was like, hey, good for you, Michael. Now he's your problem. Because <laughs> everyone's going to say this is what nationalism right. is. And we've seen what happened to conservatism when he said this is what conservatism is. And so I much prefer him calling himself a nationalist. Yeah, and he's the one that said it's the Republican Party, not the conservative party. That's right. Yeah, so, and thank God. Go ahead. Because right. so it isn't. It run isn't. with that. Right. And yeah. But so the thing is, so there's this great story about how the New Republic was founded as a journal to support Teddy Roosevelt and um, and Teddy Roosevelt's notion of military preparedness and all of the strong foreign policy, strong executive. But then Roosevelt loses and Wilson becomes president and the New Republic basically gets on the bandwagon with Wilson and TR gets furious and he storms the offices of the New Republic and says, it was, it's, this is a negligible rag, negligible rag <laughs> run by two... I want to say emaciated Gentiles and two uncircumcised Jews. I don't know what that means, but I just love it. But the problem is, is that you get these intellectuals who want to make a, a coherent, consistent case, because that's what intellectuals want to do. And then Trump will be on both sides of all sorts of issues. He says, on the one hand, he's a free trader, but tariffs are great. You know, and you cannot, there's no safe harbor if you want to make a coherent argument. So right. they end up having to just sort of say, play the man and say, the man is great. And whatever he ends up deciding, that's what I'm for. That's not intellectual. That is no. the essence of populism. That is the essence of yeah. sort of uh, a certain kind of it's cult. A cult. Yeah. yeah, yeah. 
Uh, real quick, and I don't know if you've had a chance to crack open George Will's new book. I have, I have. Okay, you've so been on this podcast. I lo- so I got it for Father's Day, uh-huh. and I just when you mentioned Wilson, I had no idea that if the graduate school at Princeton, right, mm-hmm. had been placed on the campus where Wilson wanted it, he would have stayed as president of Princeton. He never would have gotten into politics. He wouldn't have become governor of New Jersey later that year. And we would be much closer to a Madisonian uh, system of government. That, to me, I had never heard that story. I'm a thriller writer. That was awesome. That was the hook that got me into that book. So we're actually later this summer going to do a – because I drop hints about this all the time, and it was one of my only pointed real criticisms. I I interviewed George for C-SPAN Book TV, and then I also had him on the podcast. And so I've said it publicly to his face. One of my main criticisms of the book is he's not hard enough on Wilson. Oh, wow. And I mean he's hard on Wilson. Yeah. Yeah. But – if you read my first book, I get into the weeds on this. Wilson was easily the worst president of the 20th century, worst president probably in American history. So far. So far. No, but Trump is incapable of doing the damage. Well, Wilson. Yeah, Wilson really knew what he was doing. And he was... Wilson regretted that the South lost the Civil War. He resegregated, you know, he put thousands of political prisoners in jail. Uh, he had a sort of fascistic militia called the American Protective League that did his bidding for him. Um, he was a bad guy really really bad guy and plus intellectually because he did have a coherent intellectual point of view he did lasting lasting damage to the constitution and so anyway we're going to do a special episode of the podcast later this summer i think with david piatruza one of my favorite historians and it's just going to be an hour of woodrow wilson bashing (laughs) woodrow wilson history's greatest monster you should do it in front of a live audience i would pay come (laughs) come see that well i know you have to get going i could do this all the time anytime you're in washington we'd love to have you back on thank you very much and thank you for listening and thank you for all the support for uh for suicide of the west you were great oh it's it's one of i i still to this day talk about it i i think and this is i'm going to give jonah's book a shameless plug (laughs) if you have not read suicide of the west it is absolutely fantastic. Everything we're facing now and what we might be facing in the future, this book is – I honestly think it's one of the most important books to have been written in, in the last 20 years at least. And I love liberal fascism. I mean I love liberal fascism. But Suicide of the West, it's, there is nothing that, that compares to it. I really, really loved it. It's, and it's not only did I feel smarter when I closed that book, it was an easy book to read. And you are a Sonny Reagan optimist, <laughs> uh, even with the heavy stuff, even yeah. with the bad stuff. And I like that about you. And, um, and it's shown through in the book. Well, I really appreciate that. And you know, it's funny we were talking about people coming after you for your Trump stuff. When I did the radio show Circuit, it was amazing how many people said, well, so why'd you write an anti-Trump book? I was like, the book starts 250,000 years ago, yeah. and I started working on it when no one, including you, thought you could ever win the Republican primaries. But the weird thing is the moment that we're in with all of these sort of post-liberal nationalists and all of these people coming out of the woodwork, the main criticism from big chunks of the intellectual right now is that a book called Suicide of the West was too optimistic. <laughs> That's um, funny. Anyway, Brad, thank you so much for coming on. The latest book is Backlash. It's great. I probably will, I'll probably finish it over the next couple on my flight out to San Francisco tomorrow. Thank you for coming on, and thank you for being part of the remnant. All right, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Okay, so uh, Brad Thor has left the building. Um, it's a little sad that the uh, thing that Brad was most looking forward to doing this podcast was meeting Jack Butler. And Jack is not here. Jack is still in Italy. He'll be back later this week. Pitch hitting for us has been, pinch hitting, sorry, has been um, 
Audrey Falberg, our intern, who's not on a mic, but she's been doing yeoman service, and she was sitting here with white-knuckled fear, knowing that her entire internship would be ruined if it turned out that this stuff didn't actually get recorded. But uh, one of the traditions we do try to uphold is that by the end of our intern's time here, that they have a cameo appearance on The Remnant, so we'll do that another day. But I want to say thanks to Audrey regardless. I, as I said at the beginning of this thing, I went to Alaska for a very long weekend, and I am exhausted. And then t first thing tomorrow morning, I'm going out to Silicon Valley for um, some interesting meetings, which I can't really talk about right now. But when the robot overlords take over, um, I'll be in pretty good shape. So that's, that's good. And I will save the conversation about participating in the... I, and I use the word participate, the midnight midnight sun run in Fairbanks, Alaska on Saturday night to 10K that starts at 10 o'clock at night and because it's on the summer solstice. And so one of the crazy things is that like it's just broad daylight at, at midnight. And that was entertaining and weird, but it, it's the idea of me actually participating in a 10K is so central to Jack's identity. Uh, that I feel I should save that conversation for when he is back. I mean, I, I kind of, I kind of wonder what he's going to do with his other, with his, with his two remaining wishes. But I want to say thank you to everybody for sticking with us. There have been some technical issues as we've made the transfer over from National Review. I do want to say that the archives for the Remnant are now available on iTunes and everywhere else, but they're also still available at National Review Online um, and, and, and our podcasts. NR has been great in sort of working out the, the nitty-gritty with me about making this transfer, and I'm still I'm hugely grateful to them, and NR podcasts are still wonderful. I'm a religious listener of the editors, even though I cannot stand the way Rich Lowry says, the notorious MBD, and how he closes it with that, I'll see you next time. But other than that, I mean, if, that, if those are my only criticisms, that's not really too damning. I mean, I really encourage people to go back and listen to the heroic Stem whiners from our friend Charlie Cook about the Sora Amari stuff, if people aren't sick about all of that. I'm not sure when in the order this one will air, but I think it will be first next week. Not that this means anything to anybody, but I also recorded a podcast when I was in Grand Rapids last week with our friend David Bonson that I, I swear to God began with a long discussion of theonomy and then got nerdy. So look forward to that. Please sign up for the G-File, if you haven't already, at Reagan35x.com. That's Reagan35x.com. It is the only place right now that you can subscribe to the G-File, and it's sort of important for us, and for me in particular, to rebuild that list that I had at NR. So if you're a fan of this podcast, if you're a fan of the G-File, if you're a fan of canine updates about my dogs, it is the only place you can go, and you can only get it in newsletter format for the time being. And at some point, we will have grander announcements about where the, the Hayes-Goldberg joint production thing is going. But I'm really grateful to everybody for sticking along to the ride. I'm grateful to Brad Thor for being here. And that's all I've got. And since Jack isn't here, I can say it. I'll see you next time. <laughs>
No, you're on the podcast.